0: I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow.
1: For your eyes only, darling.
0: The mother, she was, must have scared the living daylights out of her.
1: What have you to kill.
2: Hello and welcome back to For Your Ears Only, the Optimism Vaccine-sanctioned James Bond podcast. This is the podcast where we go through each of the Bond films one by one, counting down to the release of Bond 25, which is now slated for February of 2020. I'm uh, your host Jay Tropila, Joined with me as always with Jack Eason.
1: Hey, Jim. Jack, how are you doing? I'm
0: doing good. I jumped the gun there. Sorry, it was very unprofessional. I apologize.
2: It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. You are forgiven. This is a friendly, happy place. <sighs> okay. You know, we welcome we welcome all sorts of people. And speaking of welcoming all sorts of people, we have a very special guest with today's episode. Uh, my quest to get every member of Optimism Vaccine is coming to fruition with. Steve Cuff joining us for today. Steve, how are you doing?
1: Hey, guys. I'm I'm doing all right. You know, watching some James Bond flicks, uh, fighting against the oppressive capitalist machine, you know, just day in the life. That sounds, sounds good, man. Sounds good. All right.
2: And boy, have you joined us for a doozy. We are discussing 1979's Moonraker. Um, I got a quick Steve. question
1: for you re- re- before we jump into this. Go. Go right ahead. I've seen a handful of James Bond movies. I, I obviously not as much as you two. Uh, uh-huh. Are they all like this? <laughs> Short answer: No.
0: <laughs> no, but kind of. I don't know. It's it's yeah. We'll have to go through this one. Okay. We'll go through it. Yeah. Sadly, no, they're not all like this.
2: But um, but uh, some do come close. This is often regarded as. Uh, as one of the craziest ones, mm-hmm. or one of the zaniest ones, and then many, many serious fans like to call this one of the worst ones in the series. Um, I'm just going to come right out and say it. I don't, I don't agree with those people. I think this film is a lot of fun, and I really enjoy it. Yep. Uh, I don't know how you two guys feel about it, but oh, um,
1: this movie fucking rocks, man. This oh well.
2: Is- <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, buckle up. You're in for a hell of a ride. Jack, what were your first impressions of Moonraker?
0: My my first impressions are, I mean, I suppose space had to happen. We've had some, uh, what do you say, dabbling with space in previous iterations, but it it was only a matter of time before James Bond went into space. So, you know, yeah. And I mean, that sets a tone that this, this is a 1979 space Action extravaganza. So uh, yeah, we're not really rooted in reality or anything else here. It's a very, it is, it's a very strange film, and I think it really carries on from the boy who loved me in kind of recalibrating the series to Roger Moore's arched eyebrow portrayal. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's kind of like these are just a lot more. They're a lot more fun. So, Steve, when you ask, are they all like this? No. Sean Connery would not have gone into space. It would have been <laughs> ridiculous. Timothy Dalton? Absolutely not. But but Roger Moore can go into space. It's fine. Fair. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, before we get into the film itself,
2: I want to ask Steve, since you're a new guest, um, what's your uh, history with James Bond like? We always like to touch upon where our fans are coming from. If you have any notable favorite films, where you first started.
1: Sure. I you know Fire it's, it's interesting because I I really didn't grow up with a lot of James Bond in my life and I think for people that are around my age my my real not necessarily like introduction to James Bond but like my interest in James Bond started when uh the Golden Eye video game came out. On that, that's a common 64. theme.
0: That's a that's very actually, common yeah. theme.
1: Yeah. So you are the same. I was like okay, this is awesome, and then I, I had played the game and loved it, but I hadn't actually seen the movie. And then I saw the movie, and I was like, "Well, this fucking sucks." Um, <laughs> and I don't know if that's a common reaction either. But I I was not a big fan, and but but I was still interested enough because in the GoldenEye video game, there's it, it's not just GoldenEye, especially with the multiplayer. There's a, a lot of n- nods to other films and and other things in the series, so. I, I kind of dug in and, and checked out a few other ones. <clears throat> However, my local Blockbuster video was limited in their Bond selection, which is why to this day my favorite Bond movie remains *The Living Daylights*, which uh, also probably an unpopular opinion. But you know, here we are.
2: <laughs> well, I will say that it's not an unpopular opinion with me. Okay. I love that movie, All right. and we'll have you we'll have you back on for that one. Good, good. Um, That's why I like you. <laughs> But great. All right. Well, uh, Moonraker certainly doesn't waste any time taking off to the stratosphere. So let's jump right in. Um, Those who recall our episode on The Spy Who Loved Me, which may or may not have already been pre-recorded, recall that that film opens with a vehicle being hijacked while it is on operation. Uh, Here, it is the Moonraker Space Shuttle is on the back of the Royal British Air Force plane, and it's hijacked and takes off and the plane explodes. So um, this is a film that's directed by Lewis Gilbert. He's directed You Only Live Twice and The Spy Who Loved Me. And Jack, I don't know if you recall, You Only Live Twice, but that film also opens with a space shuttle getting hijacked mid-operation. <laughs> he so is, he has a real hankering for hijacking vehicles
0: while they're being used. He is, he's, yeah, he's like the, the master of the like, big vehicle eats little vehicle cinema, if that's a thing. Yeah, yeah That's, that's call on Gilbert. Big vehicle eats little vehicle. I like that. Um,
2: So, of course, space shuttle is stolen. we got to call in Bond to find out what happened to it. Bond is in the middle of another mission where he's on a little private jet. Uh, They say he's on his last leg. Cut to Bond fondling the leg of the stewardess or whoever it is. Um, But the stewardess and the pilot betray Bond. They shoot the controls out and then plan to jump out of the plane with Bond. Bond fights the guy throws him out of the plane and then Jaws appears out of nowhere and pushes Bond out of the plane. Uh, I got a couple questions for you guys. He, well, how do you think Jaws got onto this tiny airplane without Bond noticing he was on there? <laughs>
0: this, this seems a theme of this film. I mean, later on, we'll find an entire space station that was built without anyone noticing. So I feel like there's the theme of ginormous hulking things sneaking, <laughs> sneaking past the eyes of apparently very perceptive people. I don't know. He must have taken up the whole, like, luggage space or maybe hidden the bathroom for the whole time. I'd <laughs> i'd I
2: I like that. Yeah. Bond is on a plane where he can't use the commode because Joss is just hiding in there with a parachute. Yeah, it's badly broken. Uh, Yeah. Anyways, uh, so they all fall out of the plane. And I got to say this entire skydiving sequence that takes place really looks amazing uh, by today's standards. There's still still a few close ups with uh, green screen backgrounds but a lot of the stunt work is incredibly well done.
0: Yeah, this was a real, this is your point break, but, you know, 20 years earlier. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. really, really impressive. I mean, I'm kind of reminded again of something like Mission Impossible Fallout and their Halo jump. I mean, this is a a similar kind of a setup where they really did use actual skydivers and ran with it. Apparently, t- apparently, they did 88 jumps to get this sounds. Nails. 88.
2: Yeah, 88 lifts offs get all the footage needed for this sequence. Okay. See that so. that makes
1: a lot of sense to me because I agree. I think this opening sequence looks amazing. Um, yeah. And uh, then some of the special effects work once we get into space uh, looks like absolute dog shit. So it makes sense <laughs> that they, they blew the entire budget on this opening scene, and they're like, "Oh shit, we still have a movie to make." It's just hard yeah.
0: it's hard to do space. It's uh, especially when I mean we talk we talk about one of the, the, the weird timelines is, is that really a lot of the tropes of space and NASA space exploration hadn't really been nailed down. Uh that kind of came in the eighties. Uh this was kind of on the cutting edge of like the sh- the shuttles and things that you see here, they were still being designed. So um yeah thankfully it turned out the shuttles NASA ended up using were pretty similar visually to what they had shown to the producers of Moonraker, so what they were working on turned out to look pretty good. But yeah, this is kind of, I guess... This is after like two thousand and one, which obviously is the space film, and they specifically ape certain sequences from two thousand and one to kind of show they can right. do it too. But um, <laughs> yeah, this this is very much um, like space is just hard. If you just put everyone in tinfoil suits and just a lot of green screen and like superimposition and miniature work, um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think they blew the bu- I think they blew the budget across the whole thing. Unfortunately, I suspect the space stuff was really expensive. It just looks goofy as hell because that's just what they did. That's all they could do. Well, and, and well, uh,
1: the, I'll go ahead, Steve. I was gonna say that the general strategy with this movie, too, is and I can understand why some people might not like this, but I find it endearing. There is just so much shit going on in this movie. <laughs> That even when yeah. something doesn't make sense, you're like, oh, that didn't look so great, or why is that ha-? They don't give you time to really think about it. Yeah, abso- They're just absolutely. Like, okay. <laughs> they just dangle something new, shiny, and dumb, and awesome in front of your face. You're like, okay, I'll pay attention to that now, <laughs> but I still don't know what's going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, yes, we, we can look this- to 2001 and say that was like the, the premier special effects space film and it looks really good and it still looks really really good but they also didn't have a full on laser assault in that film on a space base <laughs>
1: so who knows what well, uh, Kubrick like maybe
0: that wouldn't have looked so good in 2001 their fancy pants Stanley Kubrick directing so you know go yeah, handed to bond that's the only
2: thing missing from 2001 is if Hal is. manned the lasers on the ship and started shooting at Dave
0: common yeah. um, They're just lacking that element uh, oh, but and, you know yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, And, uh, you know, honestly, I'm a little disappointed that uh, 2001 didn't have a a sexy spy space lady named Goodhead. You know, I think that (laughs) really would elevate
0: (laughs) it. Oh, Dr. Holly Goodhead, we'll get to you. There's all these people who Um, think Kubrick's a great director, but, like, look at all this stuff He missed. Mhm. Mm-hmm. shame <laughs> well yeah
2: well if uh, if anyone recalls um from the spy who loved me um steve if you're not familiar every single bond film up through the timothy dalton era always teased the title of the next bond film mm-hmm. saying james bond will return in such and such adventure now 1977 is when the spy who loved me was released and that film ended with james bond will return in for your eyes only however 1977 is also the year that Star Wars came out and crushed every uh, record known to man. And, and so ruined four years, years, years only. Know yeah, basically. So, and, and arguably James Bond, but uh, so uh, for your, for your eyes only got uh, pushed aside in favor of Moonraker, so that bond could, uh, it was essentially became a space race so that bond could go to space next and capitalize on the success of Star Wars. So, uh, Bond has always been notorious for sort of aping what's popular at the time. I think this is arguably the most egregious example of that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because he's
2: done exploitation, he's done kung fu movies, so yeah, this is James Bond's Star Wars movie. Uh,
0: makes a lot of sense, though. It, um, it does make a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, so so we kick, I suppose we kick on from there into, this is one of the weird things, okay, I'm going to come out and say, we'll discuss the the title, main theme, the main titles, I think these are maybe the worst main titles of any, they just seem really messy to me, which is really ironic, because apparently the main titles for this sequence cost more than Dr. No to make Um, well I mean we are inflating costs
1: in their defense the the title like in the opening credits they kick off with jaws falling out of an airplane without a functioning parachute and landing in the middle of a carnival and still being very alive (laughs)
2: Yeah, he he yanks out the rip card so hard that it just breaks, and then he starts flapping his wings, and he lands on a circus tent, and then, yeah, it cuts to the title sequence with this weird shot of Jaws falling, and when he lands, like, all these clowns and circus performers are, all their silhouettes are tossed in the air, and then we hear this. For my money is just utterly incongruous to the images we just saw. Yeah, oh. no, that's
0: that's flying clowns.
2: Yeah, and then silhouette of James Bond parachuting to safety. Uh, yeah, Moonraker, Shirley Bassey. This is uh, her third and final film that she made a theme for. I'll let that play in the background.
0: It's um, yeah, it's it's funny because for me, and it, I, it's just one of those goofy jokes I've always had is that that the theme tune to Moonraker is always just the tune of Goldfinger but chapping Moonraker instead and it's actually I've forgotten yeah. that Shirley Bassey actually sang the same song or sang the song for both of them so I guess if there's some continuity there
2: yeah as far as as far as Shirley Bassey goes it's a very very sedate song it's more of a love ballad than a, a raucous
0: yeah, cheering yeah, of the yeah. villain He's not belting but, uh... it uh, and apparently she didn't have yeah. much time to repair, so she didn't really. She wasn't as fond of this one as the other two that she did for. It. But I mean, it functions. It it works. Moonraker yeah. is kind of a weird title to work with, to work into a song. It's not. This isn't the first song people tend to go to. Yeah, it's
2: it's middle tier for me, Steve. I don't know how do you feel about Moonraker.
1: Uh, the the song's not great, but like Jack said, you don't really have much to work with. You know what? What are you gonna say? Especially, I, I don't know how privy she was to the the various plot points. Like, did did you just get the name? or I mean, do the plot points matter in a movie like this? So, what are you gonna sing about? Like, the leaves have fallen on the moon. Let's rake the moon, Moonraker. Like, what are you? What are you gonna do? It's nothing.
0: I mean, that would be pretty good. I think. That's for the remake, certainly. Exactly. So Somebody
1: call me. Come on. I need a job. Let's do this.
0: Yeah, Moonraker does conjure up like a weird Zen, Japanese Zen garden concept of like sand and someone just raking patterns in it. That's what it's all it's going to be, which is no reference whatsoever to this film. Uh, It doesn't make a lot of sense. But I would say, as I said about my uh, Morris Binder's credit sequence and how I felt it's really one of his weaker ones. It's just it's more just like women spinning as is pretty yeah. standard but it's like half of it's circles yeah. but it seems like the circle is off-center so there's like this weird judder to the circle which really just drove me nuts for parts of it and just didn't really have yeah. like the uh, particularly coming off The Spy You Love Me which I think has one of probably one of its best title sequences it is I don't know it's just kind of like uh, this is a little bit of a letdown honestly Yeah. and it also you doesn't really it. belie the space it should have like little NASA shuttle spinning that would be mm-hmm. that would be amazing yeah. yeah, it's literally a woman, be- like a nude woman,
2: becoming a space shuttle as she orbits around an off-center moon. Is that's is this just that same image repeated over and over and over again?
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Two thousand and one again. The Star Child becomes the Star Woman becomes the space station.
1: <laughs> that's
0: that's right. The evolution of man in itself. <laughs> um, all right, so Mon's given
2: the mission. He's given a wristwatch uh, by Q, which would become his uh, de facto gadget of the film. And it's uh, looks it looks painfully large and clunky just to sit on his wrist, with, which is basically a mini cannon that can shoot either steel-tipped or poison darts uh, out of the tip of it. Uh, Steve, any thoughts on this gadget? Would you want one for Christmas?
1: Uh no, because I would, I would just be doing something completely innocuous. I would probably kill my cat. I, I don't, I don't trust <laughs> yeah, myself. Because the... the whole thing is just like, yeah, you can murder someone with this high-powered like dart gun. All you have to do is just flex your wrist slightly. It's like no. Oh, that seems a it's little control. Different.
2: That's right. It's controlled from nerve impulses in the risk, which could screw up somebody's day if you're just having a casual conversation. Oh, with Oh,
1: yeah. It on. What, if, what if somebody asks you like what time it is and you just go to look and then you blast them in the neck? Like There's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of bad possibilities here.
0: I mean, you, you guys are all considering the possibility of killing someone else. I'm just thinking, what if you flex your hand down the wrong way and just get a dart spread into your own hand or through yeah, with the yeah. armor piercing? Or your, it, yeah. seems, or your it seems like a risky one. It doesn't even have a watch on top, if I recall. Like mm. no, so it's not it's just <laughs> only a dart launcher. Oh, totally innocuous. No one would have any questions when ah. they see you wearing one of those. No. Not yeah. at all. <laughs> well, anyway,
2: so a lot of ground to cover in this film. We'll skip ahead. Bond goes to Drax Industries, which is the company that built the shuttle, based out of uh here in sunny Southern California. Uh he meets our villain, Hugo Drax, uh, who I actually rather like how he's played by Michael Lonsdale. Famous French actor, you might recall, from uh, Rivette's Out 1. Um, and he also meets uh, Lois Childs as Dr. Holly Goodman, the <laughs> aforementioned doctor and one of the co-engineers working on the it's, Moonraker shuttle.
0: It's very awkward, because I feel like, you know, they're, they're trying to move ahead with the times, and so women are becoming... <laughs> they're still, it's not exactly progressive, but, like, women are, like, she's a doctor, they're, you know, they're more, they're spies, they're, like, in <laughs> jobs that are more in the equivalent of a profession sending to James Bond himself, it's not like, I'm a fashion model, or I'm just a person in a bikini standing here, you know, they're, they're trying it's to, true. like, they're trying to open a little bit, but then it's like, you're a doctor, you're also named Holly Goodhead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, come yeah. on. I don't, I, re- I was, really like Krax oh. as the villain, though. Uh, I mean, he's he's basically, <sighs> like, if if you gave like Elon Musk some like <laughs> space lasers, this this is like what he wants to be. This is a very contemporary film. There's It does. I mean, yeah. You know, I, I mean I don't I don't know if Drax is an active Twitter user or if he's been on Joe Rogan's <laughs> podcast, but Do you ever he's, think he's, do you he's ever basically think he, Elon Musk?
0: Yeah, do you do you ever think he's ever got the SEC to sue him because he got high and tried to impress his girlfriend and like <laughs> tweeted some dumb financial reports that were fake? I mean
1: it seems flash uh, he's
0: <laughs> truly truly a magical person my my main my main thing about Drax that I thought was unusual is that he's and i th- and i agree i think he's really he he doesn't he's not like a really textured bad guy but he's he's got a presence and an, a weirdness to him, and part of that weirdness is like they show up in California to go to what is clearly a french like a palatial french mansion um incredibly ornate french mansion um he has a french Pilot, uh, who who like introduced him? He's a Japanese butler who serves English afternoon tea. He quotes Oscar Wilde. He's like this really weird mix of like like he. It feels like he's very much trying to impress people. I'm just wondering if it's maybe like one of those weird kind of classist overtures that come through in james bond movies because james bond movies are very you know they're very much rooted in old english concepts what's normal etc and it just like i feel like drax is this weird conglomeration of new money stereotypes like that he really like all of this is undercut by the fact that he's in california you know he's just he's just another american out you know doing nonsense living the dream yeah
2: He's a really just a poster boy of uh, mass cultural appropriation. Yeah, if you think and, about it,
0: and and that's it. And but but he's really weird. Like he's not. And it, I feel like James Bond. They always do this over and over again. That James Bond is a cultured, well-bred, aristocratic man. And then all of yeah. his, all of the villains, he be look like that, but they aren't really that because they're not English and they're not well-bred. <laughs> like yeah. they, maybe they have the money, they can buy the stuff, they can buy the fancy wine, but James Bond will always talk about the fancy wine more than them because he's honestly kind of a prat about that Um, and that's you know so again Drax I think fits into this wonderful long line of strange uh, megalomaniacs that don't quite fit in and are kind of looked down upon also they all seem to go to the same tailor between like him and
1: uh, (laughs) yeah they do
0: they're part of those Nero jackets yeah yeah, that one jacket with like no buttons on the front that Blofeld and him and the guy in uh, the Spy Love Me whose name escapes me like they all seem to be the same guy kind mm-hmm. of Scrummer, there's, yeah. a, there's a very Blofeld heir to Drax but he is not Blofeld because legally they couldn't use Blofeld uh, yeah. that would be cleared up later
1: well and uh, you know I-, I love how stereotypical and just over the top evil but also like I'm a regular guy Drax is and it, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of uh, last month I watched the movie Night of the Demon for the first time oh nice and oh. That's the one with uh, Linnea Quigley and the the kids in the house, right? Or is that? Am I
2: thinking of something else? You're thinking
0: of something else.
1: You're no. thinking of something else. This is Linnea <laughs> no, Quigley think, I think a, no, a Jack no,
2: Turner film would be an amazing I, cast. I, there is, I There is a film called Night of the Demons. Yeah, this is this is singular. The this the is a
1: singular yeah. demon, not not plural. Linnea Quigley was probably like Fair a enough. fetus when this was made. Uh, but. <laughs> The, it's great because the bond or the the villain in that movie feels very much like a like a stereotypical Bond villain uh, that kind of mirrors Drax in a lot of ways. Where mm-hmm. he's vaguely European, but you can't really pin down what he is. And there's this sense that he's like he tries to build this big aristocratic life, but there's something you know that isn't authentic about it. But then also, and this is very James Bond, very very Moonraker. He's clearly doing a lot of illegal, bad, murdery shit, but people are just like, well, he's just a rich guy. What are we going to do? Like, it yeah, doesn't I, seem to be a really <laughs> like concerted effort to stop him.
0: I feel like I feel like that's a theme through a lot of these films is like and it's almost like they're so close to the truth. And no one talks about in public is how rich people, honestly, if rich people wanted to hunt poor people for sport or whatever, in reality, they could probably get away with that, with it, without too much. Like, Jeff Bezos is basically a Bond villain in everything except oh, yeah. for the fact that we've uncovered the, like, he hasn't tried to exterminate humanity yet. Like, I just, I just feel like they brush so close to it and then just, People are like, oh, yeah, there's nothing like the movies. And it's like, it's not entirely like the movies. Uh, there's some overlap here. <laughs> yeah, well,
2: I mean, ever since The Spy Who Loved Me, pretty much all the Bond films going forward are all these wealthy industrialists who have billions of dollars. And the film just essentially becomes about Bond killing them and returning, restoring peace to the, the proletariat. Um, just by knocking off these, <laughs> these grand evil people, restore, but, um, restore, yeah,
0: restoring peace of the proletariat while also enshrining the goodness of the British empire. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, totally, uh, totally in favor I, of all these things. Uh, but I do
2: like, uh, I, I was just going to say, I do like Drax a lot. I think he has a lot of funny lines, uh, in the film. Like when, after he meets Bond, he calls to his assistant Chang and says, uh, escort Mr. Bond, see some, that some harm comes to him. Or uh, or Mr. Bond, your your deaths to provide an amusing death for you defy my expectations or something like that. He's yeah. he's got a really really lot of great lines in there. Oh no, yeah. he he just he dryly fucking
1: man. And and the way yeah. and the way that like his brand of kind of like buttoned up evil aristocrat how how it rubs up against and and complements Bond is fantastic. And yeah. this. like my probably my favorite line is when he. <laughs> He's, like, on the grounds in this, like, old, like, Rolls Royce or whatever Bond is, and he rolls up, and Drax is just, like, shooting pheasant or something. I don't even know what the fuck he's doing. Um, it's, yeah. it's like shooting clay pigeons, but surprise, they're not pigeon, clay pigeons. They're, like, real birds. And he's like, oh, why don't you try, Mr. Bond? <laughs> and so Bond takes the gun from him. And there's, like, a guy in a tree with a gun that's aiming at Bond, like, waiting to just murder him. And yeah. he throws up the, the bird or whatever, and Bond goes to shoot the bird, and instead he shoots the sniper guy. He's like, oh, you missed! And Bond's like, oh, but did I? And it's like, it's just, it's such an afterthought in the plot. It's like, yeah, like, someone, you saw someone aiming a gun at you, and then you fucking murdered them with this, like, bird rifle. And it's just whatever. We're just we're just gonna continue moving forward here. It is a little exactly. unrealistic
0: when you consider that Dick Cheney shot a dude on a birdhouse, like point blank in the face, and he survived. So I'm not sure how <laughs> Bond did it from that range. But yeah, I mean, yeah, if you think about it on paper, Bond was sent
2: there officially to meet Drax, and the report would be that Bond went to Drax's compound, murdered one of his employees, and then left.
1: <laughs> that's, yeah, that's yeah. exactly it.
0: Standard <laughs> yeah. standard operating procedure. Uh, it's worth, do, it's yeah. worth mentioning as well that we have a uh, Corinne Clary, the first of the Bond girls, is introduced early on here too as uh, Drax's uh, helicopter pilot. Um, yeah. Sorry, Corinne DeFour is the is the character played by Corinne Clary. It's a little confusing. They actually have the same surname, and there's no sex pun in there, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. <laughs> so good for her, but uh, she she shows up, and it's also weird because uh, Bond just basically performs some industrial espionage on Drax. And she oversees it with him. Just catches him in the act, and is fine with it for some reason. Yeah, she helps him. Just helps him because Bond is just seems like an honest face or whatever. And uh, well, this just lets him go. This
2: leads to yeah. Well, this leads to the craziest thing about this movie for me is that she gets murdered by those dogs in the forest. And for like thirty seconds, this movie turns into a Lucho Fuchi film where it's, like, it's like very misty and, and grainy and just the fl- slow-mo shots of her running with these two Dobermans out and out. And for a movie that has, like, a, a laser dance at the very end, it's just so bizarre that this scene comes in the middle of Moonraker. What did you what did you think of this dog sequence, Steve? Oh, I was, ninja- I was
1: all about this shit. Like, I, I thought the exact same thing. I'm like, this seems very, like, early 1970s Italian schlock film, but in a cool way. And <laughs> yeah. for, for a movie that... I mean, just from like a, a directing cinematography standpoint, the look of this movie isn't anything special, you know. <laughs> but that whole scene you're like right. Oh wow. Like I think that's part of the reason why it's so jarring is because, you know, it is a silly film and there's not a lot of artistry going on here, but then you're just like, Oh, right. this looks really awesome and then but we don't get any more of that, so
0: yeah yes it really makes you perk up it's a weird transition because i'm pretty sure there's like a weird continuity error in it because just as she starts running i think she's like wearing like white flats or sneakers or something because she has to run and i'm pretty sure she was not wearing those shoes in the previous shot it's just like this weird thing of like they change it out so she could just start running full speed i don't know why she runs She, she arrives in a golf cart just rolls right in, gets out, realizes she's about to get hunted by dogs, and then she runs past the golf cart to into the fire. I feel like getting the golf cart, I mean, go for it. Drive back to your helicopter. I don't know if a Rothweiler can outrun a golf cart, but I mean, at least you could, like, kick it out or whatever. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Anyway, one of the not, like, in terms of weird, unrealistic elements, I suppose we can't really rank that too highly uh, amidst what we'll find later on. Yeah, so through some
2: series of coincidences, Bond ends up in Venice, and he's on a gondola. And uh, Drax and his men uh, have must have foreseen somehow that he would have a gondola, so they prepare a gondola, and there's a guy in a coffin on top of their gondola with all these knives and holsters inside of the gondola.
0: And, and one of the uh, knives is spring-loaded to pop up, like, yeah. just one of them. It's a bunch of other ones, but <laughs> one of them is, like, popped up to be picked out to be thrown.
2: Yeah, so then, not only having anticipated that his enemy would have a gondola, Bond's gondola turns out to be an inflatable hovercraft gondola that is also motorized to allow a necessary escape. Uh, again, things happen for like literally no reason in Moonraker, yes. but it's just such a blast you can't get caught up in and, and when the he particulars starts, of a yeah, scene. When
0: he starts in the gondola, there's a guy at the back piloting it as is traditional for that form of content and i don't he gets knocked out during the chase when it starts or he gets killed actually because for some he reason is, actually, yeah for some reason the, the the assassin targets the driver first which makes very little sense to lose this element of surprise popping out of his coffin but i don't know what was, was the gondola pilot was he uh, uh was he in on the whole this is actually a hovercraft thing I, did he show I up and he was given no the gondola like it's a very there's a lot a lot just <laughs> that i just don't understand about this sequence yeah and and then it just seems it's also weird
2: because before he gets to the gondola bond is talking to uh Dr. Goodhead and he investigates the uh the little the glass museum uh where he suspects that Drax has Drax a secret lab and then just goes out and calls a gondola like it's a taxi, but it also happens to be his souped up gondola. I don't know if he had that planted there for a quick escape. Um Steve, any thoughts on this gondola and the ensuing chase sequence yeah, that happens? I,
1: I was I was kinda of caught off guard by this one and my first thought was like, are all gondolas just like this? Like you can
0: <laughs> <laughs> just a lonely planet guide, you'll find out, yeah, <laughs> all the gondolas actually have this stuff.
1: I mean, I've never, I've never been to Venice, but maybe, maybe they all have giant motors in the back. I'm not sure. And then oh. the, the whole way this plays out, it's just like some comic, like Keystone Cops nonsense. It's just, yeah. Cause it, it does. Unless he gets on land. Yeah. It, it does the whole thing. Like, I don't know. Like if you ever watched the TV show, the monsters where they just do the thing where they just like speed up the footage. So it looks like they're running yeah. faster than they are. So they're doing that. And like. They're just like, oh, there's another gondola with two people on it making out. And then Bond like plows through it, and the two people are still making out. And the guy who was running the gondola is like, oh, what do I do? And- <laughs> He's still trying to row his yeah. gondola. But he just sinks with it. There, there's there's another it's a man whose part-
0: livelihood is sinking, just despair in his eyes.
1: <laughs> and there, there's oh. that other part, too, where after Bond knocks out the, the guy who pops out of the coffin, like 30 seconds later, that gondola goes under oh, that, that the was bridge, weird yeah and then it just knocks the coffin with the dead guy off so they they came up with this like extravagant uh you're gonna <laughs> hide in a coffin that has like special slots for knives but also we weren't smart enough to measure this shit so <laughs> it's fucking <laughs> well, and it was,
2: what's weird is that is that in the middle of the chase sequence we cut back to that coffin just floating idly in the canal and a guy looks at it, and he, like, looks at his cigarette in disgust after seeing this coffin. And he's like, he gives up smoking because he somehow sees a, he sees a coffin. It, I don't know if he thinks that it's just, this is death coming for him, but it's,
0: it's really bizarre. It is. And I think this all ties in with, um, like, The Spy you love Me, which I think is it really, I think, recalibrated the franchise to Roger Moore. And Roger Moore was not the physical, kind of brusque, burly kind of bond that... Sean Connery was, but I think the first two films right. mostly tried to use him like that. They were still pretty action-heavy. They they had more outlandish plot tropes to them, but they weren't. Uh, they still played pretty straightforward on their action sequences, and it was really. I feel like there was this recalibration to humor with the Spy Who Loved Me, and then outright here, which work it works okay with Roger Moore because Roger Moore looks like he's in very good spirits throughout. Like he's he seems pretty happy to be doing what he's doing. So I mean, you have like when the the gondola goes up on land turns out to be a hovercraft because of course why wouldn't it be and there's there's editing to make a pigeon and a dog do a double take yeah of the hovercraft which is is an insane thing to include in a film like you could not fathom that being an element of a sean connery film um but but it works here and it's almost like the the humor that was inserted in say um the man with the golden gun, as we we discussed the ter- that great car stunt, the, the corkscrew car stunt that they felt was so outlandish that they added a whistling noise to it, which undercuts this phenomenally great practical stunt um and doesn't fit. And by two films later they're doing double takes of pigeons. <laughs> um and that's fine. They don't and they don't feel that's undercutting anything. Uh but, but it works it works pretty okay here. It really gives this very goofy set up to it. And of course we have other things like the fact that they go and they painstakingly have this this woman giving a tour of the antique glass museum who outlays outlines how rare and expensive everything in this room is. And of course within 20 minutes we have a fight in that room where literally everything is broken and it's just like this goofy element to the to the whole franchise or to this whole film they uh, it really it's a huge shift as i think of it, like if you compare it to like From Russia with Love or even uh, uh like Gilbert Lewis's film with Sean Connery You Only You Only Live Twice i mean which which was honestly i think it's an underrated bond i think it's a great bond film um has some outlandish elements in it, including, of course, Sean Connery and Yellow Face, which is actually not that outlandish in terms of what Hollywood was doing right into the (laughs) 80s. But anyhow, somewhat outlandish, but like comparatively very staid compared to where it would go with Roger Moore. So, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of just an unusual to me kind of this, this recalibration of the franchise that really Moonraker, I guess, is probably about as wild as it gets. On around, I mean, I know we have Octopussy coming up later, but like Mo- Moonraker is it's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, Steve, to answer your question earlier,
2: not all Bond films are like this, but most Roger Moore films are like this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you want to have a good time, call Roger Moore. Works for me. <laughs> yeah. We we touched upon the uh, the glass fight in the museum where pretty much everything gets smashed uh, before Bond sends the guy hurling out onto the piano below. Uh, and then he misquotes Casablanca. Yes, he does. Um, as
0: well-bred as he is, he, he misquotes yeah. the classic film.
2: Yeah, Bond's always such an asshole about correcting people when they're wrong. And then when he's wrong, there's nobody around to correct him. <laughs> That's a really good Amazing.
0: point. What a, he also tries, uh, earlier on in the film, um, he tries to mansplain space rockets to a scientist, to, to whatever, to Holly Goodhead. Do- Dr. Goodhead, yeah. yeah. Which, which I do, it kind of... Uh, Uh, enters this thought to my mind, which is what is the history of mansplaining to the history of cinema like exposition in scripts? Because he's obviously, he's explaining it to the viewer about space travel. And Bond is like a notorious mansplainer. He is always explaining things to people who clearly know and probably built the thing he's explaining. Unless unless it's like Brett Eklund's character in The Man with the Golden Gun who doesn't know anything. So Bond to explain know. everything to her and it's just a terrible, terrible thing. But yeah, he's yeah. always explained this to And it's like, he's explaining it to us, but it just makes him look again like a prat he's just like oh yes you build a shuttle let me explain how shuttles work uh, So, like okay maybe <laughs> don't do that because that's really annoying and you just never yeah. like literally that's your first impression why do these women fall in love with him i'll never understand <laughs> doesn't make any sense he's just,
2: he's just so disarmingly charming so it seems yeah All right, we move on from Venice. We go to Rio. Uh, Bond reunites with Holly Goodhead again. Uh, She's just, everywhere Bond goes, she just happens to be there because she's part of the CIA, and she's also investigating Drax. I
0: I do Uh, want to bring up, okay, so you mentioned she's part of the CIA. Does this mean Holly Goodhead is an alias? Like, did she choose the name? Because that was, (laughs) like, at, at first it was like, that's a stupid name for a character, but then it turns out she's a secret agent, so... Did she? yeah i don't know we never get explained i guess james bond is probably his real name i know we have some arguments about people who believe james bond is a code name i don't think so it's his real name uh right. so holly goodhead is uh, like all these secret agents operate under their real names for some damn reason uh but <laughs> i just love the idea that she she was chose like choose your alias for this assignment like holly goodhead I was like good yep that'll fit I,
1: I like to Doctor think it's, it's her real name, and the only part of it that's an alias is she gave herself the title Doctor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what kind of background did she need to do to clear to become a part of Drax's staff? I mean, that must have taken months, if not years, to be a part of the Moonraker system, because shuttle space shuttles aren't built in a day, from my understanding. You can't just hire anyone off the street to operate on them.
0: Yeah, no, generally Ugh. not. Yeah, and I mean, he has to steal. The reason, it was revealed later on, the reason he stole the shuttle in the first place in in the opening sequence is because he was, one was short and he couldn't build another he one in needed time. needed it, yeah. So, which also brings in the question, honestly, if he hadn't bothered to steal that one, apparently no one would have got wise to his plan ever.
2: Yeah, yeah, so... Anyways, Bond uh, goes to Rio and uh, in at this point in the film, Jaws has rejoined the picture and he's he's called upon by Drax calls like a henchman agency and they send out Jaws to help do his bidding after Chang is killed. Um, I think it's funny that there's like a, a henchman hotline that villains can call in the Spawn universe and Jaws is one on the list. Um, but they get into the fight, this fight on these cable cars, um, which I think for the most part actually looks really good In the, a lot of the wide shots. There's like stunt men riding on top of the actual cable cars as they go down the mountain. Um, but yeah, then there's a, a few goofy close-ups with the uh, processed green Yeah, screen It's, shots it's, it's a little,
0: it's a little clunky. And I think this furthers the thing that Roger Moore is not a rough and tumble actor. I mean, he's 52 yeah. here. So, um, oh, yeah. yeah so, so like he, he really... He can't be so, so in one way it's good because it means they use a lot of these long shots and they create, they, they have these really incredible practical stunts. Like they had a bunch of guys on a cable car, they really did that. And apparently, during production, one of them slipped and damn near fell off and he was holding on to the edge of the car and they, they managed to pull him up. But like he was really nearly died that day. And we had the parachute jump where we had those, you know, guys doing 88. Jumps just to capture a couple of minutes of footage is so. In one way, it's really good. They they get these really impressive because I, as an action fan, I like. I really do like a good, like a wide shot that that contextualizes kind of the environment they're in. But it also means that the close-ups, a lot of the choreography is really awkward. And I think also um, Jaws is, and it kind of continues on from them uh, from the Spy Love Me. It, like uh, Jaws is not like between. Uh, roger moore and and jaws they're not exactly the the best physical actors like uh um, no my, richard keel who plays jaws was obviously picked because he's ginormous he's seven right. foot nine or something he's just huge so he that, that's what he's picked for but he's not like a a, a sprightly lied fighter so the so the fights are tend to be a little bit a little bit stagey a little bit awkward but like you say the, the practical elements there are really really good as i think yeah. you mentioned very early on in this podcast series jake you mentioned how hd has not done roger moore's stunt doubles any favors and i think <laughs> there is right. a truth to that at certain points this you see a guy just turns his face just a little bit too much to the camera or jaws in this case and you're just kind of like yep that is not the same actor yeah
2: yeah and like like you said jaws he really doesn't do much except for a lumber around I mean, he takes a lot of hits, but he seems to be virtually indestructible. Uh, and and yeah, as much as I love Roger Moore, he he cannot throw a convincing punch. No, no. it's just all a wide wind up.
0: In, Which in, I love because yeah. he's always doing that like stock karate pose, like when he's fighting Chang in the Glass Museum, he like adopts his little like karate kid pose and he is as convincing as Ralph Macchio, the karate kid, as two people <laughs> who clearly have no idea what they're doing.
1: <laughs> I-, I have a question about the physiology of uh, Jaws. So, sure. and maybe this is touched on in, I, I, he, this is his second outing, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So He was so popular,
2: yeah, they brought him back inexplicably, as you know, in the he just shows up on the airplane so because, dumb. you know, people love Jaws. Yeah. But yes, go on.
1: Okay, so we know he's got the, the metal teeth, hence Jaws. Right. Uh, later in the movie, when they encounter each <laughs> other on, on the spaceship, there's this kind of comical fight moment. Where Roger Moore punches him in the face, and we get the, like, dinging sound of metal as he punches yes. him in the face, no effect. And then he goes for the body shot, and we get the same dinging sound of metal. So, okay, does Jaws also have, like, a metal torso? And then, then, mm-hmm. he, he punches Jaws in the dick, and it's the same noise. Does Jaws have a metal penis, is what I'm asking. <laughs>
0: But well, I'm sad to say it is not clarified uh, at any point in the Spy Who Loved Me whether or not he has a metal dong.
1: <laughs> well, yeah,
2: they only it really established the teeth in the Spy Who Loved Me and then I uh, yeah, I guess I don't know they built upon that somehow. I guess he's supposed to have a like a metal uh endoskeleton. Is that the one that's
0: inside? Yeah, yeah, could could be. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, when when Bond kicks him in in the the family jewels, he responds. He he Flinches. That hurts. Sure, but yeah,
2: but there's still like a
0: like a, a, a hollow ringing. Like he just kicked a <laughs> metal container. Of P- some perhaps sort. it wasn't physical pain. Perhaps it was the just the knowledge going back to him just that the, there will never be a Jaws Junior. Yeah, yeah. Even though I, he gets I, a girlfriend uh, in this film, because that's right. what happens in a movie like Moonraker. Jaws gets a girlfriend.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: so here. Okay, about that. This always seems like. <laughs>
2: a missed opportunity when he gets the girlfriend because it happens at the end of the cable car sequence. Uh Bond and Holly escape. They cause Jaws' cable car to crash. Uh He's stuck under one of the gear wheels and then this uh, diminutive blonde girl with pigtails and glasses comes up to help Jaws and then that, I don't know what that music is
0: called but oh, it's like... it's from the Romeo the and ta- Juliet. It's Tchaikovsky oh, right. from Romeo and Juliet, yeah. Exactly. You, you'll know some... it when you hear it, listener, if you're not exactly. sure of that.
2: Yeah, it's always that, it's now the stereotypical fall-in-love music, and uh, Jaws looks at her, he smiles and reveals her his metal teeth, she smiles back, she should be wearing braces for that to work, I think that is a missed opportunity in the making, that, is that she should have had braces, and I always remember that she does, and then I watch the film and I'm I'm slightly
0: disappointed, I have changed oh, my. my view now. I don't like this film anymore. You <laughs> just point that. <laughs> I don't
1: know. Well, I'm I sorry. think this it's is a classic love story. I mean, who who among us has not crashed in a cable car, and then a random woman walks up to you, and then you just walk away in love? Like, we've all been there, right? So it yeah, could no. have happened, happened earlier in the film, and he could have fallen in love with a clown, because he already crashed into the middle of a circus tent. Yeah, And Jaws does have a thing for clowns, because... That scene in in Rio where there's the big parade going on and Jaws is like, wow, in this basically like a giant Halloween-style parade, I need to put on a giant clown suit so I don't stick out. Yeah.
0: One thing I will say about the whole Brazilian sequence, we go from the cable car to the the Rio de Janeiro, uh, like the, the carnival festival and stuff, there seems to be an incredible preponderance of product placement through the Brazilian scenes they even like rope it into like directly in, put it into one of the sequences but like it's 7up branding everywhere and Seiko watches like the the billboards yeah. they're all over the place it's, it, and it's kind of jarring how much of it there is in this short <coughs> section of film and Marlboro Ew. I think as well I don't know, and it's supposed to, like, I guess
2: the people of, according to Moonraker, the people of uh, Rio de Janeiro are just always partying, because when Bond goes to the the cable car ticket office, where it has the 7up logo plastered on the front, there's, like, people having a dance party in bikinis in front of that thing. Like, where the hell is that, and why are they having a party there? Well,
0: I guess it's just carnival, so the whole, like, Bond only ever goes to to those islands and and countries when there's a massive... Uh, festival on um like I'm I'm trying that's to remember right. like in in like Living Let Dawn. Ch- oh
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: same I thing. Was... So so you went there and it's, it's always the same there's always like the big festival, the big annual festival. Uh yeah. so that's that's just it. So Carnival, everyone's dancing and, and having fun. Uh, and of course he meets up with uh the last of the Bond girls of the film at this point too, who is Manuela uh should not in the film for very long, to be honest. Long enough. No, was, long enough to in, sleep with <laughs> them. She sleeps with them, she almost gets killed by Jaws and then yeah, just
2: she just sort of disappears. Just disappear.
0: No more use as a as we wander into um I don't want to jump ahead, but I think it's worth noting in just how deranged but also prototypical of like our, our archetypal of a Bond film that Moonraker is, we, we move into our second boat chase of the movie, because one wasn't enough. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, before we get there, we go to, uh, I don't know if we're in Spain or somewhere, but Bond is dressed up like, uh, uh, he's got a, he's got one of those, the seven, the magnificent seven music starts playing and Bond rides a, a horse to a Spanish monastery where, uh, M and Q and Money Penny are all set up, recurring, which is one of the recurring gags is that anytime they go out to the field, they have their entire office set up and uh, there's all the guys in Q-Lab are testing out the different uh, gadgets and guns. Like, they are they have, like, explosive bolas, but then one of them is just firing a Moonraker laser, and why would you not just use that? Why would you bother with, like, a, or the guy dressed up as, like, a sleeping guy in a sombrero that splits open and fires machine guns? Well, yeah, just, I, mean, I would use the laser.
0: They have a fake gaucho that that guy just pops gaucho, up, and yeah. it's like, yes. yeah, why, why not? Um, an amazing. I mean, I lo- I kind of love the q Lab sequences because they are just an excuse to have a string of just ridiculous run like visual gags. So, yeah. but yeah, yeah, he he traveled and the the the, the use of the Magnificent Seven q cue, uh, cues in again from the Spoil Love Me, which also has um uh, stuff like uh, Doctor Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia. So they started using, yeah. it. and also here we have um we didn't mention at the time. There's a keypad. The code in Italy right. is right. the Close Encounters contact music. Which? Why would you make the secret code to the lab an incredibly memorable theme that everyone can overhear when you're typing it in? Uh, that yeah. I'm not a security expert. That seems like an oversight, though, to me. But yeah, there's this weird um, pattern that's really kind of came, and I, I didn't really notice it prior to the spoil of me of more of a musical, wi- a whimsy to the music score, and they're starting to become more referential of other movies.
2: Yeah, I think it's and it's the, the spy who loved me in this film especially. I think this is kind of where they use it the most, and they, they do start to tone it down, down as far as his uh, memory serves. But, um, yeah, Steve, any
1: thoughts on uh, on Q Branch or uh, music? Magnificent Seven? No, the, the music thing was, was weird for me because it, it felt like a reference to something, but I had no context for what the reference was, so I was just like, this feels important for some reason, but I don't know what it is. So that's pretty like... much
0: how it's employed throughout. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. Magnificent Seven, so it's like the the uh, just archetypal cowboy theme. But yeah. then they're like in South America, so they're not really cowboys in the same fashion. I don't know. It's a weird throwaway gag, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. All right. So uh, this we we t- we just we're about to get into it, but yeah. Then there's the second boat chase of the film which looks like the live and let die bayou chase um, yeah, there's
0: also I suppose at this point just prior to that we have uh, Q tells Bond where to go and we bring in the plant uh, subplot which is uh, such a weird weirdly unnecessary thing but it becomes pivotal that there's this poisonous orchid that, the, that causes sterility in people uh, if they live in its its vicinity for long periods of time, which is why the Incans or whoever the civilization in this area of South America all went extinct, um, Drax mm-hmm. explains to us. But now he's harnessed it so that it's completely a, a terrible bioweapon that only kills humans but not plants or a- other animals. Oh, that's and he's going to launch. Yeah, it's very thoughtful. He's he's just a, a ecologist to the end. He's, he's just a friend of the environment wants to get rid of the human plague. But he's going to launch yeah. this from space, and it just becomes. It's just kind of mentioned as an afterthought, but I mean this is a man who we know we're going we know he's going into space and we and we've already lasers and I just feel like everything feels much more tech-based and then he's kind of like we have this reference to ancient civilizations and harnessing a deadly plant for bioweapons. It's it's a strange uh gathering of ingredients, I suppose, but it's also very quickly thrown in. It it feels like just sort of a it's not a very well-developed plot beat, I would say. No,
2: and then and it's it's identical to the the villain's plot from the Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, Stromberg he has webbed fingers and he wants to build an underwater city of people by nuking all land on life on Earth. And here Drax wants to nuke, like start a master race in space, which will come down and repopulate Earth after he's obliterated all human life on it. I should say all the like you said, all the plants and animals are going to be safe but yeah it's it's they're both about these two megalomaniacs who want to basically wash away the earth and restart with their own uh, yeah yeah the, there's racist there's
0: this really really kind of crazy uh there's a very strong overlap between both of these films which is it's unusual considering they follow directly after each other that they would so heavily overlap but also it does bring it just reminded me that drax probably has like the biggest harem since blofeld in honor and majesty's secret service so like he just has these women everywhere there's also men on the spaceship he's not planning to repopulate just by himself what a thoughtful gentleman! Mm-hmm. So, um, but but it's just these women in like like barbarella style f- pseudo futuristic outfits all over his bases, and Bond meets all of them and kind of has a nod and a wink with them, and then he gets. I guess he doesn't really get to do anything with them, unlike in honor *Majesty* Secret Service, where Bond manages to get two two in one night at one point. Cause, <laughs> that's uh, right. Because he's a professional. <laughs>
1: Yeah.
2: Good old Bond. Uh, anyways, following the boat chase, um, there's like this really stunning sequence that I like a lot where Bond finds himself in the middle of the jungle and he just starts following all these women in beautiful white robes. They take him to Drax's lair, but I really just kind of like how strange and elusive this sequence is. Of just all, It's, it's completely wordless and the music's very nice. I really like uh before Bond is dumped into the pond with the Anaconda, but I really like uh I don't know how you felt about this sequence, uh, Jack or Steve, but what what do you think about all these women just emerging out of nowhere and
0: attracting I, Bond I think, I to feel the like it. Yeah, and base. again it's like the the chase through the woods. It's a really kind of lush, sensuous, strange sequence in the context of the larger film. Yeah. Yeah,
1: well, yeah it's this, just yeah, a this few was, moments uh, like that. This is another sequence where I felt like I blinked and missed something like how how did we get to this point? <laughs> Why are we here? <laughs> and then I started to think that's, back about that's the previous questions. Yeah, and and that's and really that's Moonraker in a nutshell, right? It's it's how, wait, exactly. how did we get here. The movie.
0: <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's all just one giant David Bird song. How did we get here? <laughs> it's pretty yeah, <sighs> it's, and it's strange because I mean it it kind of like they have the the white flowing robes on. There's almost like this Grecian beauty i guess or something you know a a kind of a platonic perfection that they're all supposed to 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 represent so i'm just i'm kind of surprised that bond didn't just kind of like team up with drax and head up to space because honestly this looks very much like his jam yeah uh any thoughts on the anaconda fight Uh, uh, this is this is terrible because he kills and how realistic it looks he kills he kills an anaconda here he has a very realistic looking anaconda they did animate the mouth a little bit that like it flops open at one point to like make it look less like he's just punching a like this looks like a giant draft excluder you know kind of thing you could easily like, lay this prop in front of a door to keep cold wind out this is a ginormous rubber snake that roger Moore rolls around in the water with but in uh the spy love me he he sacrifices a shark to jaws so it's really starting like a new trend of james bond just being a dick to animals like, I don't think he didn't kill any alligators in Live and Let Die. I mean, they just... He escaped them. So, terrible. I'm, I'm not a well, fan of this whole thing, you know? Like, leave the animals yeah. alone, James. Oh, yeah. And he even, he even like, uh, aerosol can fires a snake
2: in the hotel room in Live and Let Die. So Oh, that's true. Uh, Roger, Roger Moore's a bit of a dick to animals. He is. And,
0: which is interesting, because in apparently he didn't like hunting at all <laughs> um, in real life. So, eh, who knows?
1: Yeah. But yeah, yeah, anyway, the <laughs> snake
0: fight is... Um, it, 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 the, the jaws versus shark fight obviously in the previous in spy love me kind of reminds me a little bit of like full sheet lay the ground for full Sheet's zombie and the zombie versus shark fight an equal kind of like goofiness of that i feel this is following in the same vein it's just a really goofy fight i like you would have to be five years old to really get wrapped up in this in any meaningful way
1: yeah yeah
2: uh, well, luckily, Bond has a poison pen on him, which uh, works to kill the Anaconda. Drax asks him why he kills the Anaconda, and Bond says, he. D- I discovered he had a crush on me. It's clever. Uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, anyways, this is where Drax reveals his master plan. He's going to fire all the Moonrakers to his uh, lab in space, and then he'll fire the globes to the Earth and destroy it with that. Uh, we. I don't think we even mentioned yet. They're using, like, a... Uh, some kind of uh, liquid cyanide gas that'll eradicate
0: most of mankind. Um, well, that was uh, siphoned from, isn't that, isn't that siphoned yeah. from the flower? I think, I don't know. That's right. Yeah, Who knows? exactly. Yeah. It's that. It yeah. doesn't matter.
2: It's, exactly. It doesn't matter. Bond, through this series of coincidences, Bond meets up with Holly Goodhead again. They escape from being obliterated by the flame of a uh, launching spaceship they hide they jump onto one of the spaceships themselves and then they through like a really lengthy sequence we see them go into space um, to uh the Drax space shuttle where all of his uh all of his guards, and then all of his uh, his specimen, as he refers to them, will be on there to presumably mate and give birth in space, this and then the send weirdest
0: their offspring. Because because yeah. they have the sequence of all of the shuttles launching, and one of the shuttles is full of all these like sexy young fangs who were going up there to to repopulate the new world, and they're just making out with each other in the back of this space shuttle, and it hey, really man. yeah it <laughs> you really don't you has... don't
1: start a master race without a little uh, hanky panky, okay. No, that's, I totally agree, but I just
0: feel like I mean, you could make a spoof of like a porn spoof of James Bond, but like it's they're seventy five percent of the way they're already in this movie, uh, just I can't yeah. I just, this just we, feels like if if Bob Guccione had produced this instead of, like, <laughs> <laughs> instead of uh, whatever oh. that film that's now the Caligula, uh, Caligula I feel like this could have yeah. gone in a whole other direction. There would have been a lot more uh, space action, I'll tell you that. Different kind of well, space I, action. I think, yeah, I think we can be, uh, if we put our heads together, we could probably bang out a script for Moonbanger. Moon- <laughs> Easily, absolutely. Yeah so we, oh, we end up in space uh which and as again we're saying this is it's this is really expensive special effects work. the special effects work in this film is really it's yeah. very elaborate and the set design ken adams sets are ginormous uh they yeah. built i think in fact i I believe this film still holds the record for the largest set constructed in france ever i'm i think that might be it certainly was at the time and like he built these huge three-story sets for the space base and put it all together like it's it's a really it's impressive even if it looks a little bit dated Uh, but it's really just big and lavish this is and this is the most expensive Bond movie to date I think by quite a stretch but we'll get into that yeah yeah, this is... I, no
2: expense was spared to make this the most extravagant one yet. I mean, I look at Star Wars. They had to yeah. match it somehow.
0: Dude, uh, ironically, it, Star Wars probably didn't have as much money as rubbing no, Vaseline I, on the lens. <laughs> yeah, I found out.
2: I we'll, we'll get into the budgets a bit later. But um, anyways, uh, so Jaws is also on board the spacecraft. Then he finds out that he and his... Uh, his girlfriend are not genetically superior and they're, she will likely be killed. So Joss <laughs> betrays Drax and then this causes everything to go into chaos because Bond and Holly Goodhead have disabled the tracking on their ship uh, or the, the tracking mask, I should say, and now uh, there's an American space shuttle coming after him, which I don't know how long it takes to get a space shuttle into space, but apparently minutes, according to... Min- uh, yeah, fully. Yeah.
0: I have to add, did Donald Trump who announced the Space Force as his oh, no. legacy did he just watch this movie like cause this is literally NASA has space soldiers
1: oh fuck yeah <laughs> no this is, this is Space Force the movie 100% it's so fucking yeah. stupid it... <laughs>
2: It's then yeah, then it becomes American soldiers firing space lasers at Drax's henchmen, yeah. and then it beca- everyone. All the gravity goes out, so everyone's floating uh, around and, and flying. And and and, and... When I
1: was talking about how the special effects kind of take a nosedive towards the end of this film, holy shit! The yeah. zero gravity stuff is amazing. It's like it's like they're <laughs> they're framing. The each scene with like wires just right there in the middle, like it's almost like they want you to see them.
2: <laughs> yeah, you can definitely see the wires on the on the on the performers there. Um, uh, anyways, Drax, I think Drax gets a really good death um, because not only is he hit with the poison dart from uh, Bond's uh, wrist dart. Um, I can't even call it a wristwatch because there's no watch on it. But then Bond sends him out into the vacuum of space as he's being poisoned to death. I think that's a pretty satisfying shit, if you ask me. I don't know, how you, I don't know Jack. How you feel yeah, about yeah, it? Yeah, no, I it's, it's good because,
0: like, if nothing else, he doesn't inflate like in say live and let die like it's a straightforward kind of a death I was kind of surprised he didn't like explode in the vacuum of space even though apparently that's not really what happens but I choose not to believe that because it's much cooler in movies when people explode always a plus yeah but yeah it's it's kind kind of comically drifts away yeah i I think it suits because drax is uh, i know it's an outlandish plan but but drax himself is not a really a, a huge like he's not a pantomime broad villain he's played with a certain degree of uh suave kind of quiet menace so it kind of makes sense that his death is extravagant but not absolutely ludicrous so i i can get down with this death scene it's not it's it you know it fits I do, I do find like this is a whole big, huge, exploding death scene on the the space station. And Jaws, Jaws, the switch I have to say is, um, I don't, I don't know. I, apparently. Uh Gilbert Lewis, the director, did this because he got a lot of fan mail after the Spy Love Me. And kids loved Jaws and they wanted Jaws to be a good guy, so Our he decided to switch idiots. more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I kind of feel like I just I, I prefer Jaws, and then Jaws kind of becomes it's signposts early on because Jaws basically every time Jaws shows up, it's a comedy scene like from the out, like his flailing when he loses his parachute and he lands in a thing full of clowns and survives, etc. So I don't know, you know, he's kind of it's always comedy and then he switches over and he becomes a good guy and he starts helping Bond it's it, I mean in, in a movie like this I guess it works but I could, you know maybe the legacy of Jaws could have been a little bit more menacing he's like he's really menacing mostly in The Spy Who Loved Me that was yeah, like he's, he's- Absolutely terrifying, and he actually even uses his teeth to bite some people to death in that film. But here,
2: I think the only thing he successfully bites is the cable car wire, which, uh, if I recall, the production made out of licorice.
1: Oh. Why wouldn't you? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly.
1: Well,
0: tasty, except he still had to wear the big metal teeth prosthetics. So, yeah. Less less fun, but, I mean, that's the magic of the movies. No one's allowed to have fun, really.
1: you know, I I would say Jaws, his his turn to good guy here it's uh it's about as well developed as his romance which is to say not as all at all so (laughs) yeah that's fine (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's,
0: it's rough that they're not part of the master race honestly because i mean like you said jake she didn't have braces so i mean like his girlfriend look, like, she looks fine Aunt yeah looks she like looks a regular... pretty
1: Aryan to me that that seems yeah. to line up with the whole yeah race <laughs> it
0: fit pretty well i mean if she had buck teeth or whatever then i mean sure okay exterminate her and everyone else go yeah. for a drax drax also never really clarifies if he's genetically superior uh, but well, I guess he gives himself an exemption. I do want to bring up again just to highlight it the fact that they have a radar jammer on his space station, so no one knows he this man has managed to assemble a space base completely with with all of the world 's governments completely oblivious to it and that is just crazy to me that no one would have ever have found out about this if he hadn't if he hadn't crashed one or a f airplane at the beginning of the film that's what set in motion the entire sequence of events where people found out any of this he somehow managed to circumvent everything air- and like in a movie where all the spies know each other and everyone's spying on everyone it is just incredible to be this idea that this dude just managed to shoot a whole space base into space without anyone noticing it's pretty oh, impressive yeah. honestly uh, he almost got away with it too uh, damn Bond
1: uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean Really, even though this one gets somehow even dumber and messier at the end, I got to say, this is just start to finish entertainment. It's basically, if you take everything that you liked as a child about the Austin Powers films, but then played it straight in a movie, you would have Moonraker. That's it. (laughs) I, that's it. I yeah, that it's really fair. good.
2: Really apt comparison. Um, yeah, that that basically wraps up the movie. I mean, Drax is killed. Bond destroys the globes, heading towards Earth, and uh, he has some zero gravity sex with Doctor Goodhead. Uh, once again, all of uh, all of MI6 and Q Branch get to see it happen through computer monitors. And when they ask, when they ask what Bond is doing, Q says, "I believe he's attempting re-entry, sir." <laughs> Which I don't. Oh. <laughs> Uh oh cute. Yeah, and then uh yeah, and then uh oh I didn't have it queued up, but yeah, then when the credits roll we get this disco version of Moonraker, which I think is arguably better than the title track oh, version yeah. uh <laughs> that we hear. It's just it's got a lot of funk and pop to it. Oh, a little bit now. Disco version of everything is better. Yeah, it totally, it totally makes this movie, like, it's it's the final button that makes it work for me. Yeah. I? I don't know why this was not in the opening, but I guess, I guess they were trying to play at least that part serious anyways. Um, yeah, let's, uh, well, let's all let that kind of fade out of the background, but let's, uh, let's run
0: some numbers, Jack. Did you, uh, did you get any kills oh, I did. for we, this one? We have the full body count, so, um we toned things down a little bit from The Spy you Love Me which actually broke the record uh, last time and set a new record for kills so we're back down to 16 kills here which is still wow. far in excess of more like in Man with the Golden Gun he killed one person so he's really right. so you know Moore's getting blooded up here so uh, that brings us to if anyone wants to keep count with me uh, that means so far in James Bond movies we James Bond has killed 124 people he's murdered in cold blood like a fucking psychopath hell yeah um, and brings... Uh, Roger Moore's total up to 48. He's climbing fast. He's nearly at Connery's total uh, at this point. Uh, and now, what, was what was
2: Connery's, just as a refresher? Con- Conner- Connery
0: nailed 70, although technically he will peg on a couple more uh in, in Never Say Never, but uh for cramming seventy in the, the classic Eon run of Ro- and Roger Moore's at forty eight, but <laughs> Rod Moore also has what, like five films to go, so I'm confident he's going to probably set the record overall for the most craven, murderous, psychopathic James Bond, but also the most the most uh coily fun and, and jokey, you know. He yeah. always a a wisecrack. Also, like, as, the
1: least convincing as a murderer, probably. That's, yeah.
0: no, that's, that's, that's yeah. what makes it scarier. That's what's really messed up about it. He's just so, like, he's just your old grandpa, and he just kills people all <laughs> over the place. His whole boat's full of people.
1: He's the John Wayne Gacy of James Bond that's it that's, that's how <laughs> well, we'll always he does remember him. he does dress up as a
2: clown in octopus, so you might be right uh-huh. so that's
0: true <laughs> that's true okay and in terms of okay we've been keeping track of how many women has he had sex with uh to answer age-old questions of how many sexual partners has james bond had uh our running total uh goes up to 29 here he gets three more women which really three is really forming itself as like the average for every james bond movie um, it's true. So three, not from Russia with love, still because he got in a threesome in that movie. Whoa, uh, yeah. That that brings it to four. <laughs> That's still the, the 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 record holder. I don't know if we're ever going to beat that. That's like the longest record we've had in this. So age differences, and um, we actually we actually match a record here. Um, so so he he sleeps with three women uh Corinne DeFore, who's Corinne Cleary that's 23 years which is a lot Roger Moore I will remind everyone again is 52 years old in this <laughs> film uh, Cody mm. and is 29. Um, Holly Goodhead, who is uh, Louis Childs, is a uh, 20-year age difference. She's 32 to his 52. <laughs> okay, but the, the record breaker here, or the record match, I suppose. Okay, our current record holder is still Jane Seymour in Live and Let Die, and it's 24 years. I got that number wrong previously at 23 mm. years. I've corrected 24 years of an age difference. Um, Manuela, played by uh, Emily Bolton. <laughs> Also 24 years old. I couldn't find a month for her birth date, so I don't know if she's older or younger than Jane Seymour would have been at the time. But um, we'll match it. 24 years of a difference. Literally a full-grown human being plus a couple more practically, honestly doubling the age of you know a lot of women in films so uh, or like you know matching the age 24 age difference so that's creepy as all hell to be honest um but that's why we're tracking it honestly because we just we we feel the public need to know
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah we're doing a service to them we are this is definitely very progressive feminist action that i'm undertaking here (laughs) Uh, this, this research this research will be quoted in the future i certainly hope so
1: You have to publish all your findings.
0: I know, I gotta be the change I wanna see. I just want everyone, whatever they're watching, just be like, oh, that is so creepy.
1: (laughs) Oh, God. All right. Yeah. Is it uh, it my turn now? Oh, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you
0: need to tell us the the budget figures, the scary budget figures, honestly. Yeah, well, real quick, I do wanna say this film got one Oscar nomination uh, for Best
2: Visual Effects. Do you you wanna guess which film it lost to? Wow. Uh, was, was it a s- Star Wars? Well, actually, no, <laughs> it was. It was. It was, it was a, uh, one one of our collective favorite. Kramer Optimism Kramer. Well, that was the best picture winner. Yeah, but uh, it lost to Alien. Oh. Took away best visual effects. Yeah. I think that's yeah. fair, honestly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, if you uh, listeners recall from our last episode, uh, the Spy Who Loved Me had a budget of fourteen million dollars. Um, Moonraker has a budget of 34 million dollars uh with the highest so far in the series by a long shot uh roughly equivalent today that is 118 million dollars um now because of the success of Star Wars James Bond in space also became a very successful concoction uh despite how one might feel about the quality of the film and it ended up grossing 70 million in the US in 1979 which is equivalent to 243 million today and it worldwide grossed $210 million, which is $731 million today, adjusted for inflation. Guys, this is one of the top five grossing Bond films of all time if you adjust for inflation. Hmm. That is how insanely well Moonraker did.
0: I mean, you've got to say as crass as it was that they like pushed for your eyes only aside to get in on the space race, it, it paid off. I can't, can't argue yeah. with the business.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, Bond's just been, it's slowly always been a box office uh burner. You know, there was a slight s- uh, snag with uh, the man with the golden gun, but or within that it recovered quickly with uh, the spy who loved me. And then, yeah, it's just been a moneymaker ever since.
0: And as much as people, as much as people sometimes like come down hard on this one, a lot of the Bond fanatics feel it's a little bit too crazy, but uh, everyone seemed to like it when it came out. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. There's still a lot of great, uh, impressively well done visual effects from the era. A lot of nice analog work. Um, I think there's a lot of charm to this movie as well uh you know if you don't like it fine but i think i think it's far and away from being the worst james bond film there is uh there's still a lot of merit to be had um but yeah uh steve any uh any final thoughts on uh, moonraker and the bond series in general
1: yeah absolutely this movie uh completely rocks ass and if you don't like it um i i guess i don't respect you or your opinions and <laughs> Based on my incredibly limited knowledge and experience with James Bond films, second best Bond film of all time.
2: Wow. You might be the first to say that. Living yeah. wow. Daylights one? and Moonraker. Yeah, okay.
1: Trail. So, so
0: you think this is, are you going to be venturing? I, I, again, I think as Jake recommended earlier, maybe stick in the Roger Moore era. Are you going to dig deeper now? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Roger
1: Moore is 100% my shit.
2: Yeah, the Spy Love Me is a lot of fun. If you wanna, if you wanna
0: check out another
1: great more film. Uh, well, you guys have inspired um,
0: me. Yeah, that's absolutely. what we're here to do. We're here to inspire well, uh, people and also point out creepy age differences. That's <laughs> the goal of this whole exercise. I love it. Yeah. Well,
2: uh, I guess that about does it for this episode. Um, Jack, did you have anything else you wanted to
0: touch upon in Moonraker? No, I, I think we we've given a comprehensive rundown of this crazy space farce. Great. Well, yeah. I mean, if you want, you can reach
2: out to us at uh, OptimismVaccine at gmail.com or tweet at us at OptimismVaccine. Uh, I can be found on Twitter at Jake Tropila. If you want to reach out to uh, Jack, Jack, where can the good people find you? You can find me on
0: Twitter at RealJackEason
2: excellent and uh steve if you want the people to get in touch with you what would you like uh where can they reach
1: you yeah you little james bond jabronis you want to come at me because uh, i like moonraker so much at steve cuff on twitter that's at steve c u f f hop into my mentions motherfuckers
2: oh i and he will fight you people i have seen it happen um all right well uh that about does this for this week's episode or this month i don't know how often we release these now but for this installment of for your ears only uh we will return with uh for your eyes only stay tuned